What's up, man? You doing all right? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, man. Hey, friends, and welcome to Simple Syrup, a podcast filled with stories, thoughts, and musings with the intention of sweetening your day. A lot has changed in our world since our last episode, and we thought it would only be fitting to change as well. Yeah, I've never done a a recorded one. Originally, we had a different show lined up for you, but we decided to shelf that and call up my friend Nick Lee, who was a pastor here in Oklahoma City for a long time and has recently moved to Florida, but is also black. I'm down. I'm always down for that. There's been a lot of conversations about race lately, and in the midst of those conversations, I have realized that I have never actually had an authentic, vulnerable, tell-me-the-hard-truth conversation about race with anybody, let alone a person of color. So yeah, so like, like how have you been? How, how's you and your family? Now, this conversation lasted almost two hours long. So out of respect for your time and out of respect for the parameters we originally put on this podcast, we are paring it down painfully to two roughly 20-minute episodes. That still leaves a lot of conversation left over. And so at the end of the second episode, we will also be posting the full conversation unabridged should you desire to listen to all of its goodies in its entirety. Uh, you know, we're struggling for Jesus, tons of sunshine, and they've been at the pool all day. When I called up Nick, I really had two objectives for that conversation. The first was to learn and gain a more personal perspective on the issues of race and inequality. That is what this first episode is attempting to do. Share with you the new perspective that I've gained. And hopefully, it shifts your world as much as it shifted mine. Well, that kind of like segues nicely, I guess, into why we're talking. Um, So kind of like, like I told you, like I've been aware of racial injustice uh, in our country uh, for a while and and I'm becoming more aware of it, but I've never actually had a candid conversation about it. Um, And so if I could be so bold as to ask, um, what could you maybe paint a picture for me of like, you know, friend to friend, you know, are, are like, are you afraid of the police? Did you, do you raise your children through that lens? Do you experience racism on a regular basis? Has it affected, you know, opportunities you may have or any of that kind of stuff? Um, okay. So let me, let me give you the personal take and then I'll give you like the, the more, um, uh, I guess academic version of it. I'll give you the personal take first because I think that's important. So let me give you a story that kind of tells you, like you asked me, how do I raise my kids? So this is a couple of years ago. Um, most of my, a, a big chunk of my family at the time lived in Kansas City. So we were driving from Oklahoma to Kansas City. Actually, my wife, Laura, who you know, who happens to be white, is driving the car. And she does not have this necessarily the same caution that I do when I drive. I'm a speed limit driver. She is a, we're going to get there as fast as we can driver. (laughs) Um, So even in my house, there's a reason for that though. And the reason is because I'm black. (laughs) I'll be honest. Like I would love to drive faster, but that's an interaction with an officer that could end in jail time or you not getting out of the car. And I actually, like, that is a serious live that way. Like, that is not me. That's a hyperbole for me. That is actual thought process. Wow. When I get into my car, I have a routine. So you can almost guarantee at all times, my wallet with my license and my phone with my insurance is in plain view 
nowhere on my person when I get in a car. Wow. Never happens. So we're dri- we're driving, right? And um, we get pulled over because I'm sure she's doing 90 because that's usually her, her limit. <laughs> um, and the officer pulls us over, pulls us to the side, and he does not go to her window. He comes to my window. And so I roll my window down. And the officer says, how are you guys doing? All that good stuff. The pleasantries, right? And <clears throat> um, I have my hands in clear view near the dashboard. Now, I want to say that this interaction isn't like one of those interactions I'm going to tell you, like he pulled me out of the car. And it's nothing like that. But okay. at the point where he asks for, my, for Laura's like, license and registration, she says, well, it's in the back seat. And if you want to talk about terror, it was terror on my part. I was like, I am not reaching in the back seat for right. any reason whatsoever. I don't know how we're going to get this because she can't reach it. And I first, I could reach it, but I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. So the officer, you know, you know, is asking for that. And I'm like, well, sir, if hers is in the back seat. I can reach and get it if you would let me. Um, but before I could do that, Caden, who at the time was much younger than he is now, I think he was six or seven at the time, took her wallet and slid it on the middle console and kind of nudged it over in my lap so that I didn't have to reach over. At six years old, my oldest son knew the drill. And the drill was, dad cannot turn around and get this. Wow. Like, it can't happen. Um, I mean, because that's, that's, I've seen that on TV where guys had to do that and he gets shot because a, an officer was, you know, afraid. So, like, my kids know we have that conversation your friends they can get away with a lot but you don't have that margin of error um you know like the stuff that kids get in trouble for all the time right like staying out too late playing music really loud running through an abandoned house um playing pranks on friends like we have conversations like you don't have the leverage to do that Mm. and as a kid I never did that stuff, but it was because of the conversation my father had with me really early, which was, you don't have, you don't, there is a margin of error that you just do not have. It, it, it's not just be a good kid. It's like, you have to be the best of kid hmm. to stay safe. So I live with the idea that my skin is a threat from the time I was seven years old to now being 35. Like, you know me well enough to know, like, I'm, um, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for most of my life, my adult life, four kids, a wife. Nobody knows that when they pull me over. I also happen to be a really big black guy who, you know, as well-spoken or whatever I might be, my skin is still a, a threat to some people. Like many times we've heard on the news of an officer who has shot and killed a person of color or, you know, brutally beat them. And the answer was because they feared for their lives. So yeah, it's, it's not hyperbole. It's not like something to make everybody freak out on the news. Like I actually live that way. So, you know, like that is something that they learn from a really early age. Um, the youngest boys, we haven't had that discussion yet. But there comes about a time, about six or seven, 
um, where you have to have the conversation in a black family or a mixed family that their skin is a reason for fear. Hmm. I'm struck at this point by the sheer contrast in the way Nick raises his children and even how he was raised himself. I was fortunate enough to have a lot of really great conversations with my dad that shaped me into the man that I am now. But nowhere in any of those conversations were anything that Nick just said. And as I aim to raise my son, nowhere on the list of conversations I need to have with him on his way to manhood is anything related to the color of his skin and the different set of rules he has to live by because of the real danger associated with it. yeah, that's the, and that's the personal toll that it takes on us because we have to have a conversation with our kids about that from a, a really early age. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question fully. I, I guess from the academic side of things, though, like if we're talking more academically about like policy in the country, um, you can look back historically and see that from before the Civil War on, um african american especially men have been viewed as a threat and it's always been something different um you know the clan is really based around this idea of keeping white supremacy going but also it was um a big part of it was to keep black men from being with or around white folks especially white women and so policing kind of has its background in some of those moments and um you can look back to history and just see where black men especially but also black women are always characterized in books and in art um as subhuman right so even our depiction um is like you know it's a human person but it's not quite fully human like you would depict like a white man or a white woman in art. It's always kind of rounded and it's got some primal qualities to it. Super dark skin and ravenous and always going around trying to, you know, find something to consume. And so it's been ingrained in the American culture that black skin is um connected to this primal savage you know less than human just just a little bit lower than human and so it it actually isn't a surprise to me that we're viewed as a danger in a society that's been ingrained for now centuries that a person of darker skin tone is in fact hasn't moved as far up the evolutionary chain, if you will, to be scientific. Like, yeah, I'm a threat because part of, like, there's something in me that just wants to go out and, you know, and and consume or kill or something like that. So, yeah, but we teach our kids that too. Like they, and I don't teach, obviously I don't teach my kids to dislike white folks because um, their mom is, is, is white. And so I, I would never do that, but, but even she will explain to her, our kids that she was raised in such a way that it was that, you know, there, was, there were good black 
people and then there were you know ones who who acted right and then there was the majority of them were not right and so you had to be careful of them and so um both from an academic like looking historically and from a personal way yeah i mean we have that's a conversation and that's something that happens and we talk about all the time i want to make a quick note here we're about to make a pretty large leap ahead just due to time restrictions but as I look back on all the movies that I've seen in my life and the posters and the comic books, how many times has a person of color been the bad guy? And how many times has the hero been white? And what must that feel like to be a person of color trying to raise your family and every time you go to see a movie, you're the bad guy? And what does that do to me as the viewer being conditioned by all of these images where a person of color is out to get me. It is traumatic. What I've noticed from the white community in this, I don't know, there's, there's this like this huge defensive reaction yeah. that would say like, if I acknowledge how we are unequal, then somehow that's going to take something away from me or invalidate me or, or yeah. mean that I'm a, you know, a bad guy, which I mean, I, I, I am white. And so to, to be able to say like, yeah, I mean, the same way, like the same way that that conversation about, you know, how you act in a car and how you don't goof around, like that conversation that you have with your kids, the same way that's been passed down to you, like my worldview has been passed down to me. And that's, you know, for both of us, it started at the origin of this country. And so in a way, um yeah i mean like i need to confess that like i am a part of a system that is the reason why you have to have those conversations with your children um and i think that's a really hard thing for people to admit then the answer should be that we like i can't there's no way you can go back and fix the system right so right. there there is zero way that you can go back and fix racism and slavery from you know uh, but the broader conversation that has to be had, and that is happening right now, if, if you're watching, you're starting to see like indigenous people who are standing, um, who are standing up for African Americans or black folks now, right? Um, you're seeing Hispanic folks who were standing and saying like, we're with them. Um, Pacific Islanders who were standing and saying we're with them. Um, Asian Americans. Well, here's the reason why. Um, because the the lie of supremacy has its roots in everybody else but us is a tier further down. Um, okay. I I I talked the other day about this uh, on on a on a video I posted, and I was very specific about it. I said, right now we're talking about African Americans and the the kind of thing that's happening to them. But also, we're talking about um, we're talking about indigenous people sitting here in America, and in and and in Oklahoma, where you're sitting at as well, there are indigenous mm -hmm. women who are missing, and nobody is sounding the alarm on a on a large scale. Um, people of color, when we talk about Hispanic folks, are still being harassed are still being pulled over and asked to show paperwork mm -hmm. when they've never lived anywhere else but the state of Oklahoma or, or, or you know, in the United States. Asian 
Americans, folks who are from Asian descent are still being asked, do they carry the coronavirus just because of the look of their, of their faces? Like, so when I say people of color, for me, it's a unifying term. Um, although I know the moment specifically has been caused by a conversation about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, but like there is a lot of violence and evil that is happening to people of color, and that is all of the people of color, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to segment or segregate myself as a black person in such a way that doesn't allow for me to reach out to other folks of color and help them as we're helping in our struggle. Um, Because that's actually been one of the most divisive things that's happened in our country is there's always been kind of some racial tension between Hispanic Americans and black Americans. And it has always baffled me that two people groups who are, who have suffered different violence, but some of the same discrimination um, would somehow segregate themselves and not support each other. Um, but that's one of the divisive natures of racism is like it, it chunks people into different groups and then tells them that the other group is someone, like if they get something, that means it's taking off of your plate mm. when like you're fighting over 10% of the scraps and there's this huge pie that we should all be taking a part of. But a lot of reasons for the racial issues in our country is to keep people divided so the haves can stay the haves and we can separate the haves from the have-nots. Like, that's, that at the end of the day is one of the most sinister parts about racism is in a lot of ways, one of the major reasons for racism in America is it's greed and it's a grab for gain so that you stay in your position and somebody else stays lower. Over the course of our two-hour conversation, the subject became less about racism and more about inequality and poverty as a whole. Nick even making the statement at one point that most of the world's problems boil down to poverty, inequality, and could probably be solved simply by giving everyone a fair share of the pie. And like I said before, we had to cut a lot out of this conversation just for the sake of time, but what I did keep were the main components that shifted my perspective and helped me realize just how different I am from people of color. And it's given me a new perspective, a wider lens to understand the world around me, to help understand the real dangers of growing up black or brown, but also to understand just how deep inequality is driven into our culture and how it's more than just violent cops that's the problem but an entire system that aims to oppress people and like nick said keep the hands in the wealth of the people that forged it from the very beginning hands that as we'll find out in the next episode made their wealth on the backs of other people my hope for myself moving forward is that I will view the world through a different lens. That I will see people not necessarily on a flat plane, so to speak, but as individuals, with individual stories, and with struggles that perhaps are a result of systems that my complacency perpetuates. And that maybe I will learn 
to love my neighbor better by understanding them and understanding myself. And that I will be able to identify systems that aim to separate people and no longer view it as acceptable. This is my hope for you as well. That maybe together, little by little, we can begin to change the way we view the world and make it a better place. And so friends, may your lenses be clean and your days be ever more sweet. Thanks for listening.